This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Honey Stinger, making fuel for athletes of all kinds using delicious honey and organic ingredients. One of those athletes is extremely laid-back ultra runner Courtney DeWalter. So every day I wake up and basically I just decide where I'm going to go, how far I'm going to go, and, uh, and then I let my legs and body and brain decide how big the day is going to be. If you don't know Courtney by name, maybe you know this theory she inspired. That in super ultra-long distance races, running becomes entirely mental. And once it gets to that point, women have an advantage. The idea came up when Courtney started winning a bunch of races. And now people want to know, what's her secret? And I also, I read that you uh, you run with a toothbrush. Uh, just those little disposable ones. You know, some of the races I do are over 200 miles and it takes me multiple days and you're just you are taking in a lot of things like quesadillas and pizza and stuff and so a little scrub of your teeth can feel really good going into day two like to remind yourself that you're still a human I think. (laughs) In addition to being incredibly laid back for a world-class athlete Courtney is a member of Honey Stinger's Hive an inclusive community of all kinds of athletes that's all about learning and helping each other reach personal goals. Yeah, so I applied for the Hive because I use Honey Stinger products. I specifically like the waffles and the chews. And because I was already using them, I applied to be a part of the Hive, which you know brought me into the fold of this community of people who also use Honey Stinger products. The Hive is full of runners, bikers, kayakers, and climbers, and people who do a little bit of everything. It's got both recreational and serious athletes, and people like Courtney, who run seriously but treat it like it's recreation. Find out more about joining the Hive at honeystinger.com sponsorship. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. The big bear stopped 30 feet in front of me. I slowly worked my hand into my bag and pulled out the magnum. I peered down the gun barrel into the dull red eyes of the huge grizzly. We stared at each other for what might have been seconds, but felt like hours. I knew once again that I was not going to pull the trigger. My shooting days were over. I lowered the pistol. The giant bear flicked his ears and looked off to the side. I felt something pass between us. I didn't know that the force of that encounter would shape my life for decades to come. The voice you just heard was Doug Peacock, from the opening scene of Grizzly Country, a short film released late last year by director Ben Moon. The film tells Peacock's story. He served two tours in the Vietnam War as a Green Beret medic, and he came home desperately out of sorts. He saw comfort and solitude in the American wilderness, where he began observing and then filming grizzly bears. He would go on to dedicate his life to protecting them. 
I'm Michael Roberts with the Outside Podcast. Like a lot of people who read books about nature and the outdoors, I first heard about Doug Peacock when I found out that he was the inspiration for George Hayduke, the infamous character in the Monkey Wrench Gang, the 1975 novel by Ed Abbey. Only later did I learn about its decades of environmental work. Much of it was done with Round River Conservation Studies, a group he co-founded to develop strategies to preserve and restore wild places. He's also been an outspoken advocate for the bears in Yellowstone National Park. Peacock has chronicled his journey in a series of memoirs, but early this summer, I was lucky enough to hear him describe the surprising history of bears in this country, as well as share some hysterical stories and give his take on the big challenges that grizzlies face today. This all came out during a talk at Mountain Film, an annual festival held in Telluride, Colorado. Mountain Film brings together an extraordinary mix of both films and people. In this case, Peacock spoke with veteran radio producer Scott Carrier. You've probably heard on NPR or episodes of This American Life. We've been looking forward to sharing their conversation ever since. I'm going to drop in when Carrier asked Peacock to describe what the lives of bears looked like before Europeans arrived. Before the white, white people, European contact, how many grizzly bears were there? In North America, I'll just say what's now the lower 48. How many bears were there before European contact? This is a wild-ass guess, but it's 50 to uh, 100,000 is what you can read in books. Spreading f- all across the... Least oh, they were, the, the range is, first of all, grizzlies came over to this continent about 70,000 years ago. And so they were here. The first... Americans that came over the Bering Strait, more 15,000, maybe older, but whatever, they were walking in the tracks of grizzlies all the way, coming across the Bering Straits, coming down the corridor, going down the coast. And uh, the grizzly range was from, you know, the, the, the Arctic Sea all the way down to the state of Durango in Mexico. I found sign of the last Mexican grizzly in the Sierra Madres in 1985. So they persisted that long, almost as long as Colorado and the Sierra Madres have a lot in common. And, and what was the relationship between the grizzly bear and the human beings when the humans came 50,000 years grizzly ago? Grizzly bears and Native Americans, indigenous people, and the range was instantly east out to the Mississippi River, you know, but all the way through the mountain country. Best habitat of all is probably California. Um, Oh, the relationship. Well, it was. They lived in the same places. They ate the same foods, and they coexisted until Western European firearms show up on the scene. They coexisted for you know at least fifteen thousand years. How did the so? How did people see the bear? I, I mean, from what I've heard, there was a remarkably similar perspective of human beings looking at the bears. What what was that like? <clears throat> Grizzlies are arguably the most human-like animal of all. You know, they have uh, you know, the physically their the rear footprint looks so much like the human footprint. They, you know, they stand up and look around. They have binocular vision. You know, they uh, they discipline their kids when they mess up. You know, cuff them up a little bit. Um, and they occupy the same habitats uh, and have a very low reproductive rate. 
you know, the lowest of any land mammal. You know, they're right up. Polar bears, muskox, and grizzlies have very low reproductive rates. And the grizzlies probably the lowest of all of them. So, you know, it's it's the most human-like and they were all of, of animals and never regarded mostly as a sacred animal. They never referred to the grizzly directly. You know, the best information we have from the ethnographic record, they were always called grandfather or, you know, the the one who stands or something like that. And, uh, uh, you know, th there was no sport hunting of grizzlies. <laughs> and when... Uh, well, wait, wait. Tell me a little bit more about the sacred or the spiritual part, the way that people thought that the bears were sacred. Where did that come from? Well, it just comes from living with them because bears dominant on the landscape as you are. And especially, you know, on, uh, where we have a lot of uh, information of ceremonies from the West Coast when the humans and grizzlies lived in the same salmon stream and they were revered. Um, you know, the heart of, of Plains Indian medicine, for instance, the Blackfeet, is, uh, you know, the medicine bear. You know, the bear knows, he, teach, it, he is the teacher of the people. And that's a theme repeated everywhere in the record again. And uh, Because of be, why? Because the bear can tell you where to go, what time of year, what season to get food. You know, he shows you what to avoid. Really? You know, he's a teacher and a medicine animal. And all that adds up to a relationship which uh, we, we call spiritual without probably understanding the depth of it. So, okay, the Europeans show up. And then what happens with, in terms of the relationship with the bear? How do things change? Well, like 1850? Like, talk, no, but, it, it, started, it, it started with Lewis and Clark. Okay. Lewis and Clark came up the, uh, you know, came up to Missouri and they ran into grizzlies, I think, in the Dakotas first. And the response to everything is, you know, sh shoot a ball at them at all times. In the course of their travels, they killed 45 grizzlies, mostly for sport. You know, they were amazed how many balls, musket balls, it took down to bring this terrible beast, as they called it. And, uh, it, you know, that really set the tone. We, we you know, we made no effort to really understand the grizzly beyond something to be feared and shot. And we just carried those European, you know, religious views of the of patriarchy and dominion with us everywhere. And we wanted control over the beast and anything that didn't suit our notions of, of agriculture, we killed. And it's, it's still the same. It's uh, buried a little deep. Uh, here and there, but uh, at least we're talking about it now. And there, I mean, and with climate change upon us all, you know, this would be a great time to have a final reckoning, reckoning and see the bear as, as brother bear and, uh, you know, save this last remnant population. And the most isolated and endangered of all happens to be Yellowstone. It happens to be where I live. And so that's what I fight for. Uh, so when, would, when was the first time you went to Yellowstone? And what were the bears like? What was the situation? Because Yellowstone was created partly to protect wildlife. Let's not shoot them inside the park. That was the original idea, mm -hmm. right? Inside True. the park, we're not going to shoot them. Yeah. OK, so when you got there, and what year were you, did you go there first? 
you were telling me last yesterday. Well, it, it was an accident. That's where I found Grizzard. I wasn't looking for him, huh. you know. And I had come up, uh, come up the Rocky Mountain chain in 1968, up in the mountains. But you know, the snow slowed me down, and I finally ended up in Wind River Range after Vietnam. This is after the six months, a few months after Vietnam. And in the Wind River Range, I got a malaria attack, and I had to go to Yellowstone um, uh, because, com comparably speaking, it was flat and the weather was better. You know, I was in the east side of the Wind River. It was terrible weather, man. You don't want to have a malaria attack or a, a bad toenail there, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I'm back in Yellowstone, which I knew a little bit, and I went to this thermal area. I've told this story before, but... Uh, you know, I was going to go back, and I had to go through, you know, the whole malaria thing, fever, 105, et cetera. But uh, once I came to, I was weak as a kitten, and there, were, there was a thermal creek around. That's why I went there. You know, it started out hot, you know, fiery hot, and ended up tepid. And, uh, and so you could kind of pick the temperature you want. And I was going to be, you know, like an old-fashioned spa and go soak in the hot water and heal myself and all that junk. Um, so one cold October day with the wind blowing about 40 miles an hour, I'm there just actually happy as a pig and shit, but, uh, uh, you know, just soaking away in the warm weather and just kind of spacing out in the beautiful blue frigid sky. And I look off to my side and about two thirds of the way down this hall, you know, a couple hundred feet. There's a mother grizzly bear and two yearling cubs that are really big. And, you know, I don't know anything about grizzlies. I just read these men's magazines before going to Vietnam, you know, and I said, well, carry a big piece, you know. Uh, uh, that wasn't uh, part of the formula then. So I decided they never looked at me, these bears. They didn't charge or anything. They were just eating some blue grass. And uh, uh, I decided I was going to climb a tree. As soon as, you know, they were looking the other direction, so I watched them, and they were all eating with their heads down, and I stood up to make a rush for this tree. And a little lodgepole on the bank of this little tiny creek that, you know, is only six feet across. And uh, the whirlpool-like effect of the hot water caused me to black out, you know. <laughs> but I was terrified. And so I hit this tree, you know, blacking out, and I smashed in it with my forehead. I cut a great gash, and there's blood dripping down my eyes, and I'm still so terrified. I scramble up the top of this lodgepole pine tree, and then I'm up, like, I mean, at the very top, like the angel in the Christmas tree, <laughs> and guess what? It wasn't much bigger than a Christmas tree. It was, you know, it, it, it was like eight feet high. <laughs> And so I sat up there in this uh, top of this little tree. The wind is blowing like a son of a bitch, so I'm blue, you know, from the cold, bleeding naked, naked. you know, <laughs> like a silly species of mountain towhee. And these grizzly bears spent 45 minutes grazing around, eating grass. At one time, they came from me to you, you know, like 15, 20 feet away. They never looked up. They knew I was up there. 
and I was of no importance, and those bears made an impression on me. That's what got me started. So how many bears were there in Yellowstone at that time? Nobody knows. The, uh, uh, there's a number of the newspapers repeat, which is a gigantic lie of 136. All right, 136. I was living in the backcountry at that time alone, the only person living full-time in the backcountry, and I don't have a clue how many bears there were, and neither does anybody else. They want to start low by telling you know, by making an argument saying they've increased the bears several times over. But, there, you know, 200 would be a ballpark guess. At that time, in yeah. the late 60s. And they were coming up to cars and basically shaking the cars for food. Well, them. you know, the, the story of Yellowstone is the grizzly bears in Yellowstone were fed uh, garbage by the Park Service for 80 years at open pit dumps. That was the situation. They would come to the lodge and people would watch No, I mean, I'm saying these were, you know, they, they were 80 years of eating garbage. Garbage is really pretty good food, you know, and the population was stable enough. Uh, but because of fear of a tort case in Yellowstone called the Walker tort case, they, everybody got paranoid. And you know that in 1960s, Seven, the night of the grizzlies in Glacier Two, uh, young women were killed by different grizzlies in Glacier Park, and all of a sudden, everybody in, in the government is worried about litigation. They decide to cover their legal asses that they've got to close these dumps right away. On the other side of this argument were the Craighead brothers, the great pioneers of grizzly bear biology, Frank and John, and they argued that you know if you cut these guys off cold turkey. They're just going to go into town sites and garbage dumps and campgrounds. And, that's a, and, and so the Park Service disregarded that, closed them right at the same time I showed up. The, the year I left Vietnam was the year they closed the dumps. And, and of course, the grizzlies went into you know, campgrounds and towns and everything else. And Frank Craighead estimates over 250 grizzly bears were killed in a five-year period in that little tiny Yellowstone ecosystem. Wow. By rangers? By everybody, you know, rangers, wardens, people defending their dog food, all reasons. Human, like human conflicts, human conflicts. But then in 75, the bear was put on the list of endangered species, is mm -hmm. that correct? Yeah. And so how did the management change then? It, it, it got better. You know, they cleaned up things, and uh, that's what I was going to say to that guy yesterday. I didn't get the time. You know, they cleaned up things because it was a federal offense to kill a grizzly. It carried some weight in those days, which incidentally today, it, it doesn't. Nobody ever prosecutes, but huh. that allowed the population to recover. And huh. they, you know, I don't know if there's 600 bears or 500 or 700, and truth, truthfully, our our methods of counting bears, it's tough. They're all based on extrapolations at some point. And you know, they try to be as scientific as they can, but there really isn't any science. It's still in the long run a guess. So when you see, you know, seven hundred and thirteen grizzlies, that's it a guess. Yeah, that's a guess. All right. So the way that My guesses are no better than theirs. The way, the way things are managed in the United States is the federal land is controlled by the federal government, but the animals 
are controlled by the states. The unless they're on the Endangered Species Act, as the they are now. Because the Endangered Species Act is basically the federal government coming and taking away the management from the states and saying, we're going to recover, we're going to manage these animals until we recover the population to a viable population. And in the Yellowstone, the plan was not only to recover the bears in the Yellowstone ecosystem, but to create uh, links, All the way to Canada. links with the other areas where the bears live, the other environments all the way to Canada to make a big corridor. That was in the original plan, right? Is that correct? Yeah. And so the federal government takes control away from the Department of well, Fish you know, you, you, for you Wyoming, just, That's Montana. a microcosm of the basic argument underlying all of this, you know, scientific babble. It's really a state's issue. It's really political. And that's why I, I said... Uh, you know, re, uh, recovery is impossible with an isolated population that's physically and genetically isolated. With climate change sweeping in, and in the next two years, it'll, I think it'll be clear to, the, to everyone how bad things are going to get. And just to give you an idea, you know, uh, the changes in climate change the habitat um, fast. Evolution of you know mammals like grizzlies and human beings happens slow. They compare scientists compare the ratio of change as one to ten thousand. You know our capacity for biological adaptations that changes. You know in the habitat are happening. You know it's ten thousand times faster. Then the so we're not going to catch up with evolution. You know we're goners. No. I jump ahead there. Um. We'll be back with Doug Peacock and Scott Carrier after this break. At the top of the episode, we heard about Courtney DeWalter and Honey Stinger's athlete program, The Hive. And while Courtney might be one of the more extraordinary athletes in the program, it's full of all kinds of people. And you can hear about a lot of them on Honey Stinger's podcast, Hive Life. Welcome to episode three of Hive Life, a new podcast that tells inspiring stories from the Hive, Honey Stinger's remarkable community of athletes and adventurers. Hive Life is hosted by former Runner's World editor David Willey. And on each episode, he goes deep with athletes about their hard-won secrets of success, sometimes even while they're out training. Most runners know that conversations they have out on the roads and trails are different. They're better. There's something about being outdoors, on the move, with endorphins flooding our brains. We tend to be more open, honest, insightful, self-deprecating, and in the moment. In March, it's the kind of show that's really good at giving you a little inspiration to keep you going if you need it. You know, it's funny. Like It was the same type of feeling that I got after my first marathon, where it was just such like elated feeling like you could kind of just conquer the world <laughs> find hive life at honeystinger.com slash hive life or wherever you get your podcast just two days before doug peacock and scott carrier spoke in mountain film the federal government filed a legal brief arguing that the fish and wildlife service should be able to reinstate 2017 rule removing grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem from the endangered species list. The bears, the government claimed, had recovered. It was the latest move in a decades-long fight over the grizzly population in the park and the surrounding lands, 
And while the government would lose this battle, officially adding the Yellowstone bears back to the endangered species list in early August, the fight goes on. In mid-August, the Trump administration announced a major overhaul of the Endangered Species Act. Doug Peacock's take on all this is that the arguments in favor of delisting Yellowstone grizzly bears have nothing to do with science. They're about politics and culture. I want to kind of just lay this groundwork for the lawsuit. The government steps in, takes control away from the states, and says, we're going to recover these bears to how many was the number they set in the greater Yellowstone area? It's an enormous criterion. You say, okay, let's say 650 Somewhere around there, right? It, it, yeah, I, you shouldn't even bring it up. All right. it, it's this long. But the point you, is, you is can't they, read it. They did it. They recovered the population. It was a successful program in their eyes. The, uh, in their argument. Yes. By then, true recovery had become a political issue. And the head of the team that recovered the Grizzly was going to retire, and he wanted a success story. And basically, that's kind of the realm in which this resided, the realm of politics. States, the state of Wyoming especially, pushed to delist the grizzly. Yes. They wanted control. And it's not even about money. It's about their ability to kill as many grizzlies anytime, anywhere they want, because they're in control. And again, you know, it's a, a Western Dominion issue more than it is. It has very little to do with biology these days. So in 2007, the Fish and Wildlife Service said, we've succeeded in our goals of recovering the bear. The bear deserves to come off of the list. We're going to delist the bear in 2007. Is that correct? uh, Yeah. I mean, they've been talking about delisting since the 90s. But, you know, here's what happened um, in a nutshell. All right. In 2002, the measured... Winter temperatures in Yellowstone started to rise. And uh, by 2007, um, 95% of the mature cone-bearing white bark pine trees had died from mountain pine beetle. And what kept, you know, the, anyway, the, the white bark pine is a five-needle stone pine, high altitude, you know, it's right up at the top of Yellowstone. And uh, what kept the, the pine beetle, which is uh, endemic and, and has lived with the white bark pine for centuries and millennia, um, were cold nights, like 35 below zero for three nights in a row, and it killed the larva. Well, starting in 2002, we measured, and it warmed enough to allow the larva to overwinter and, and decimate. You know, and you didn't need a weatherman. You could just drive around the Yellowstone ecosystem, look at the top of the mountains. They're all red. And uh, that is the same year that the, uh, they delisted the grizzly for the first time. And I was in, in the beginning of that, you know, giving a, a talk at the Teton Science School. And the headline the next day was, expert says, don't delist grizzlies. And so in that audience that night was the regional head of the Forest Service. She put up 250 grand to do a survey, which was undertook by a neighbor and a friend of mine, Jesse Logan, a white bark pine biologist and retired from the Forest Service. And uh, so he, it was pretty, it was pretty easy work because you could fly over it, map it by the color of dead trees, and then do ground checks. 
Um, and one of the person that worked on the ground checks was my son Colin. So, you know, it, it's really a, kind of a family endeavor. So we, we, we sued him, took him to court, and uh, a wonderful earth justice attorney named Doug Honnold argued the case. We kicked their ass. Um, bears back on the Endangered Species Act, and then the, the, you know, they did the two, same thing in 2016, you know, so it's like the seven-year cycle. And now, uh, you know, it's not going to be very satisfactory, but it's back. The government has appealed their defeat, and we'll be back in court again. It, uh, so you know, the White Park... That's not where I would prefer to fight my battles, incidentally. In court. The white bark pine trees die up high. They're high elevations. Yeah, and incidentally, that's the most important single food for Yellowstone grizzlies for centuries is the, is the fat, nutritious nut, you know, the pine nut of In the, the white bark pine. In late summer. Fall. And it was, there, you know, it's documented that the good science is documented because in fall, the, especially mothers with young or pregnant mothers would go up there and feed in the pine nuts. And it was so nutritious that their litter sizes went up and their cub survival is longer, and certainly longer than it is today. And it also happened during elk hunting season and it separated bears, grizzly bears from, from hunters, which is a, you know, another safety thing. So it was an incredibly important food source. So in elk season, the bears are up high, the elk hunters are down lower. Yeah, they're eating gut piles. But now the, the, their food source is gone. The trees are dead. There's no more pine nuts. Mm -hmm. And the bears come down to lower elevations. Is that right? Are coming down. They're coming down to lower elevations, encountering the, the guts of dead elk the hunters have left mm -hmm. behind. There, there's a bunch of factors at work. Okay, and the most right. important one is the weather is getting hotter and drier, and our forest fires are getting much more, you know, fierce and common. And they begin, they've done a little climate science in Yellowstone Park. They, they know that the temperature of the water is rising, for instance. But these forest fires that, you know, decimate lodgepole usually come back, you know, symbiotically, they come back with just lots of little lodgepoles. Well, they're coming back as grasslands today. The forests are being replaced with grasslands, which changes, excuse me. I, I wish this were vodka, but it's not. <laughs> or maybe a good tequila, yeah. Um, but uh, uh, so, you know, the overall effect is the, the amount of food per unit of habitat in Yellowstone is decreasing so-called carrying capacity of the habitat. It is declining, and the bears that live there <coughs> have got to start wandering out looking for new habitat and new foods. Grizzlies can pioneer new foods, but the further they move from the boundaries of the park, you know, the, there's human conflicts. Like and, new houses? And, and the only way, you know, they're going to, we're going to solve that problem is by convincing, and the key is human tolerance. And, it's, it's that, that kind of work has to be done, you know. You don't have to be very afraid of a grizzly bear. So if you've got a new house up in the woods away from town, uh, right next to Forest Service property or something, and a bear comes on your land, can you shoot it? 
No. What if it's messing with your garbage? Can no. you shoot it? It's your garbage, your responsibility. But uh, and these kinds of laws are not being enforced today. They, somebody makes a complaint, the Montana Game and Fish comes out and kills the offending bears. So you can't shoot their cages. It. The fishing game comes in. Not legally, you cannot. And, uh, uh, and you know, there are exceptional cases, but uh, it, it's a farce today. There is no prosecution. Uh, the biggest sort, I mean, the d greatest danger to Yellowstone grizzly today is uh, climate change and excessive mortality, record mortality of humans killing grizzlies and livestock, hunter misidentifications, and mainly self-protective acts. But it adds up. I think there were 91 known dead grizzlies in this little tiny ecosystem. In spite of them being tiny, still being isolated. protected, they're still protected, but there have been 91 of them. There's no killed. prosecution. It's the states are angry because you know they had their hunting season. They were going to open trophy hunting season. That's the big deal. They didn't get to do it, and they're taking out their vengeance truly on the grizzly. You believe that? Yeah. Vengeance. Yeah. It, it's, the it's bears are being there. killed just to get even with you know, the environmentalists. Uh, that is my, you know, that's my hippie-like conclusion. Huh. Okay, well, could you talk a little bit about what you see in terms of the future from climate change um, type effects? Well, I get what do my. You, what do you see happening? Well, uh, you, you know, it comes from. Round River, one of the projects we have is up in the Beaufort Sea. It's creating two national parks along, adjacent, starting at Alaska in the ocean, all along the coast. Uh, we just added another uh, national park at six million acres, all the way to the Mackenzie River. That's where I get my hearsay, my, you know, my, my influence, my, uh, my data, and it's mainly traditional wisdom, I mean, a couple of years ago, the Inuit who were hunting caribou inland had to move their seasonal hunting camps because of sea rise. They announced that before, you know, the Naval Research Lab is, is a pretty good lab for weather and, and, you know, ocean. I mean, they're a good scientific lab. They didn't even catch it up. So I'm just saying that the traditional wisdom of indigenous people is really... Uh, you know, it's as valid as, as the best available science and arguments of this kind. And, you know, uh, but basically, every September, the sea ice is gone way beyond the continental shelf. I don't know how many hundreds of miles that is. Uh, my son Colin sometimes worked with Round River. But anyway, it, so it's gone, and every, every September, it's gone way out. And we think at the rate it's going in two years, it's a whole Arctic Ocean. And when that happens, there'll be feedback systems already in place, irreversible, kicking in, that are really terrifying. And one of them is, you know, of course, the lack of the, the albedo, you know, the fact that, that white snow and ice reflect back uh, radiation, which is now being absorbed into the ocean and when, you know, all of the Arctic Ocean is gone, it's going to be absorbed so much that the methane, which has already started to leak out of the continental shelf bottom 
and the permafrost. I mean, I have pictures of, of methane boiling out of, of permafrost ponds. And the Russians have studied this a little more thoroughly, and they call it the methane bomb. Um, and they say that uh, once the sea ice is gone, that will be a proxy for the explosion of the methane bomb. And they talk about um, 50, uh, I have no idea what a gigaton is, but you know, a whole lot of those guys, you know, just going off, you know, and uh, it, it, the volume of methane potential up there is, is considerable. Do you think we can do anything to stop that change, that trend? I mean, realistically, can That's we That's a tough that? one, since it's already in place and ongoing. Right. And even when we stopped all greenhouse emissions today, abrupt climate scientists tell me that, you know, uh, let, let me just finish the, the methane right. thing, okay? Right. You know, methane, in short, it's a greenhouse uh, gas that in the very short run is 100 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So that's gonna be several degrees of Fahrenheit and at least one degree of centigrade rise. And human beings have never lived on this planet at temperatures above 3.3 degrees centigrade above baseline, baseline being defined as the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. I don't know if it's 1780 or what, but you know. That's the definition. Um, it's just scary because what what's going to affect our climate and our weather down here and our precipitation and energy needs is really coming from the Arctic above all. The change is two and a half times more severe, more abrupt than it is down here. It was 84 up in the uh, Arctic a few days ago. 84 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. it, it's it's you know I didn't come here to tell a bummer story, but that one gets gets your attention. And you know, in fact, we're going to fight the same fight anyway. You know, right to the end, no matter what, because what else would one do? And uh, in in the severest case. And again, for me, it doesn't matter if I'm fighting for caribou or grizzly bears or my family. It's the same damn battle, and I'll be proud to wage it to the end. All right. Well, thank you very much. We're out of time. That was Doug Peacock and Scott Carrier Mountain Film, May 25th, 2019. The Mountain Film World Tour is happening now. Find out if it's coming to you and buy tickets to next year's event and tell you ride at mountainfilm.org. Thanks to Ben Moon for letting us share an audio clip from Grizzly Country, which you can watch online. Just Google it. Scott Carrier's podcast is Home with the Brave. You should listen to it. This episode was brought to you by Honey Stinger, making delicious fuel for athletes using honey and organic ingredients. Learn about their athlete community, The Hive, at honeystinger.com slash sponsorship. And be sure to check out their podcast, The Hive Life. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Integrated Media. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>